Hey everyone, our friends from artsreligionculture.org who we interviewed in episode 14 are having an amazing gathering this spring in Boston on March 9th and 10th. This is going to be an awesome time in which creativity, imagination, and spirituality come out and play together. The Rising is going to be there and we'd love to have you join us. You can register at theopoeticsconference.org and listeners of The Rising get 10% off the registration fee with the code THERISING. We hope to see you there. We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Hello, and welcome to The Rising. I'm Chelsea McMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change. And actually, today, our episode is going to be all about spiritual direction. Yeah, so. I'm excited. We have um, the people who taught me about spiritual direction on the show today, so I'm excited about that. Cool. So Chelsea, let me ask you something. When people, um, when you tell people that you're a spiritual director, do you get a lot of like, well, what is that? Like, I don't get it. What is that? You know, that's a great question. Um, yes. And also when I say spiritual direction, people are like, what is that? I need that. I don't know what that is, but I need that in my life. Uh huh. Um, which I find really interesting because, um, I mean, especially because I've tried out different like titles and things for myself. Like I was ordained as an interfaith, interspiritual minister. And so when I say that to people, people are like, uh-huh, okay. And it kind of just goes over their heads. But when I've said that I'm a spiritual director, people just sort of like intuitively have a sense about that, which mm. I find really interesting. And and I think a lot of that is... Um, I mean, what makes that interesting to me is that I'm with a lot of people who are really secular or like spiritual, but not religious. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, spiritual direction, I mean, spiritual direction shows up in a lot of faiths, but I think that term itself comes from a Christian origin. Yeah. And totally. so, but like the Christians I know don't know it <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not something that's really. I find um, that Episcopalians tend to know what it is a lot mm. of the ones i know um yeah it's it, and people who like are involved in christian contemplative uh circles generally know what a spiritual director is yeah um, which is kind of what it comes out of kind of a monastic tradition like when you mm-hmm. joined a monastery um you were assigned a spiritual direction who a spiritual director who was in charge of your spiritual formation mm-hmm. and that's i think where it shows up is like when you're it's not like really for lay people. I mean, I think it is. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I, right. Th- I want it to be more, so yeah. for sure. But I don't think that it's shown up that much for, for lay people. Yeah. It's like a lot of clergy know what it is. Yeah, totally. And experience totally. it. So. so when people ask you what it is, how do you describe it? Um, I, ex- I describe it as a process of accompaniment and a way of, um, you know, actually what I really talk about, it's like a place to explore the big questions that we have about life. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I here? What, um, what do I want to do with my life? What's calling me? It's like a little bit less, 
Um, a lot of the way that it comes out, actually, I know a lot of coaches and uh-huh. um, coaches tend to focus on like really concrete goals and like ways to get to those goals. And in yeah. the process of doing so, they'll sort of work on like, oh, what are your your obstacles like emotionally or, you know, like what are your like mental blocks to getting these goals? But I, I feel like spiritual direction is a lot more about like where you're, what you're arising from as mm-hmm. opposed to what you're aiming for. And so, mm. so I, I describe that a lot. Like it's, it's like really being with someone and helping them listen for the answers that are in their, yeah. like to their own innate wisdom, you know? Yeah, so totally. I anyway, mean, yeah, I'd I love think- to hear what you yeah, I think the way I describe it is is kind of similar, and, but I think what one of the things I usually say is I'm sort of creating a space to help you get in touch with your own mm-hmm. sense of divinity, God, the universe, whatever that looks like for you, to help mm-hmm. you cultivate that relationship and to begin to learn to listen to and trust it and to trust your own inner wisdom, like you said, mm-hmm. find your own answers. Um, it's really about... Yeah, just like you said, accompanying, but um, maybe even I might use the word like coaching in this sort of gentle way, like through mm-hmm. that process of of learning to listen to yourself and mm-hmm. to really spirit that's speaking to you and through you. And, and mm-hmm. I, I would I like that distinction you made about like this is well, I don't know if it's a distinction, but what you said about it's a place to ask really the big questions about life, um, like what is my purpose and like what am I really longing for? Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that it, it, I was thinking about this today that we often start our interviews asking our guests, um, how they were brought to the work that they're, that we're about to ask them about. And that's an example of that. Like, I think in that question, we're asking what called people forward or like what, absolutely, you know, what was arising in them, you know, to talk like, what is the rising that you're listening to? And yeah. And how did that bring you to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, and I want to say real quick, um, and I think that you kind of touched on it, but I think a lot of people in this sort of globalized context of, um, of religion and spirituality are looking for ways to maybe more concretely create their, their own spiritual paths or like find what, um, Mm -hmm. what would feel nourishing to them and what practices or what traditions might like really be able to hold them as they're, yeah, as they're moving through the world. And, um, so there can be some like concrete work in there, like, oh, well, have you tried Zen Buddhist meditation? Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? like I totally, you know, I have some people that I work with that are like, they want me to give them homework. So I'll say like, yeah. okay, like here's a journaling practice you can do or mm-hmm. like here's a meditation instruction that you can check out, um, mm-hmm. and things like that. And that can be super helpful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you, what what's your story? How did you get into spiritual direction? That's another great question. Um, you know, I think for me, you know, I'd gone through this training, this interfaith seminary, um, and was really sort of finding my place as someone who was going to be sort of like, like coming at the world from like a spiritual place and like, like from ministry, like ministry definitely felt like a thing that was, that was a part of my existence, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I felt like I could maybe bring that into, um, like activists and social justice 
contexts, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to sort of like, not as opposed to, but I just like wasn't finding myself as like the rah rah like leading rallies kind uh-huh. of activist. I mean, I've done a little bit of that, but like I really was trying to find a different way to be part of that and um, and bring myself like who I was finding myself to be in that that way. And um, and actually, it was really through my my training with Still Harbor. And so today we're actually talking to Perry Doherty and Ed Cardoza, who are the executive director and founder, respectively, of Still Harbor. And they provide spiritual direction to nonprofits and aid organizations. And when I heard about that, I was like, that is what I want to do. That felt mm. s- like such a strong calling to me. And, um, and I'm just like, I think that it can be so transformative for our movements in building more sustainable, more more like connected social movements. Yeah. So that's really like where I'm finding myself now and feel really excited um, to be. It's interesting because I, I was talking to someone the other day about how there's within chaplaincy, which is kind of a similar concept um, that there's a there's like now a sort of new field or a new branch of that that's opening up called movement chaplaincy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I heard that term, it like it struck something in my heart. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's it." <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but what about you? How did you Oh get gosh. Into it? So, you know, for me, I so I was a nurse. I mean, I still am a nurse. Um, but I did it full-time for many years and it's funny because even though I've never been a full-time organizer or activist, like I can really relate to being in a helping profession when people talk about the burnout and the mm-hmm. stress like totally. um, of being a full-time nurse. And it was something that I, I went into very much as a calling, a sense of like wanting to heal people and wanting to help people. I did critical care, ICU nursing for most of my career. And at the beginning, I really liked the intensity of it. I, I liked being with people in um, in these like really like intimate and sort of um, <laughs> intense spaces, I mm, guess. Yeah. Um, it's funny, pretty early on, I realized that actually one of my the things that I felt I don't I, I hate to say favorite because it sounds a little morbid, but one of the the places where I felt like I was really good like I had some some innate ability and skill and also I felt really fulfilled in doing it was sort of accompanying people through the dying process both the Mm. patients and their families um, because we deal with a lot of that in the ICU and it's uh, it's a little bit different from hospice because we're dealing with people before they get to the hospice point a lot of times we're trying to we're trying to get them to accept the fact that they're dying and to maybe accept going into hospice and that can be really tricky. And, and when I was able to help uh, somebody come to terms with the fact of death, and a lot of times, a lot of times when when people are in the ICU like that, like they're really, really close. And so like we don't even have time to transfer them to hospice before they die. Wow. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. So, you know, sometimes I'm I'm the one who's like helping the person actually die, you know, not in the sense of euthanasia, but just in the sense of like making them comfortable and being there for the family through that whole process. And sometimes I'm the one who's, you know, getting them just to to accept and to let go and to stop fighting and struggling. Mm. Not that there's not a place for fighting and struggling to live, but um, 
a lot of times we have to say to people like, look, this is, we can't do anything more. And, you know, this is, this is not something that is, is, can be treated. Um, And so that was really meaningful to me. But the other thing was that like, I didn't a lot of times have a space, a lot of space to really do that in a way that felt good to me in my job. And Mm -hmm. my job overall was very, very stressful. It's, it's one of those things where there's always more needs um, than you have, than you can fill. <laughs> like mm. there's always more things that need to be done than you have time in your day for or energy for. Um, there's always more material needs than you have the, the materials to actually give people. <laughs> um, it's really, really st- stressful. And even like as a full-time, full-time for most nurses that are working in hospitals is 36 hours a week because you do like three 12-hour shifts. And I would pick up extra shifts sometimes too. So sometimes I was working 48 hours or, you know, whatever. But um, even working 36 hours a week, which a lot of people are like, oh, that's a pretty nice schedule. I would come home so drained oh, and I'm so sure. burnt out. I would bring my patients' problems home with me. I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would think about like, well, I don't know if the nurse, the night nurse, is going to take as good care of that patient as mm. I will. Um, which is like kind of narcissistic of me, <laughs> but, but you know, it speaks to that that I think in any kind of helping profession or um, social change work or anything like that how we can like fall into that trap of like the hero narrative. That's like, Mm. I'm here to save people. And like, you know, um, it's all on me to do it. Right. That's like a very martyr. Right, right, right. Totally, totally. There was a martyr complex. And like, I used to like go like an entire day without taking a break or eating. And sometimes Mm. that was really encouraged in the places where I was working. Um, it's been interesting working on the West Coast where the unions are really strong. Like they're really big on like, make sure you take your breaks. And like, Mm. if you don't, you get to sue the hospital for not letting (laughs) you take your breaks. But um, when I was on the, when I was uh, working in the the East Coast, especially the Southeast, that was not the case. And so I would like, I I lost like a lot of weight when I first became a nurse, like, because I wasn't eating. Oh, wow. Like taking all this stress home with me. Um, I did eventually learn to set better boundaries and to take better care of myself. But even with that, like after like 12 years, uh, you know, 10 or 12 years of, of doing that full time, I got to the place where I was just like, this isn't what I want to be doing anymore. You know? Yeah. I can't do this anymore. And um, I started to – I basically started, like, to reduce my hours. I said I'm just going to live mm. – I, I moved into an intentional community so I could live more simply. I um, I started working less. And I was like, I'm going to create space for myself to figure out what it is that else that I want to do with my life because I can't just do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. And um, I had a friend say to me, you know, Rebecca, like – there's this spiritual direction program, which um, still point in uh, Southern California, where I was living at the time. Spiritual directors really like the word still, huh? Yeah, right. They want everyone to be still. Um, he said, you know, I don't know, like, what you're going to do with your life or whatever. But he's like, I'm just getting this sense that, like, this is something you would be good at and you might really like mm. this program. And so I went and checked it out. They had, like, a little retreat for three-day retreat to discern if you wanted to, like, go into the program and I was just like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is something that I need. Wow. Um, and that program was actually so transformational for me because I think it helped me 
really find my own sense of confidence and leadership and to believe that mm-hmm. I had something to offer people beyond just physical comfort and sort of like medical abilities, like um, that I did have a, a spiritual gift to be able to give to people and mm-hmm. that I could trust it. And uh, yeah, so that's how I came to spiritual direction. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. I mean, that's really, I, I was thinking about, um, you were talking about sort of like this burnout feeling of yeah. working at the the hospital and everything and, and, um, and like just feeling so stressed and like taking a lot of that home with you. And, um, yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine, this is where I think that spiritual direction, and this is what we'll talk about today is spiritual direction in, in, um, in movements, you know, and like transforming our movements. And I was talking to a friend who works at a, at a social justice organization and she was just having a hard time, like not like bringing it home with her. And I think when you, whether you're a nurse or you are clergy or like whatever helping profession you work in, um, like there's a calling there. You know, it's like where your life, like your life has a certain orientation toward helping people, toward helping the world. And it's hard to separate from that, Yeah. you know, when you come home. <laughs> like my friend was like, you know, if I were working in IT, I don't think that I might need like a mental health day every month. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, I'm sure some IT person's going to like message me now and be like, I'm stressed <laughs> out, you know, but like, yeah, but just like that well, there's like a certain emotional, um, yeah energy that you're you're sort of using a lot totally totally and I will say having like um knowing people like for instance my mother who worked in mortgage banking for many years which is not something you would necessarily think you need to take home with you from that sense of being really emotionally involved with people but you know because because of working in a culture and in a um in a sort of work environment that was really oppressive to the workers uh, she did bring a lot of things home with her. It wasn't necessarily, yeah. I mean, sometimes it was just because she was given way more work than she could do in a work day. Um, and she brought some of that home with her. And she also brought a lot of just the the stress of like the yeah. just the demeaning way that she was treated uh, by the corporation she was working for. And and I experienced some of that as well in, in my nursing career. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth asking you know, I've seen it. I've seen it in in social change organizations where, because that's the culture we grow up in, a lot of times that stuff gets replicated, right? Like it's like I've seen it right. in unions where it's right. like we're fighting the man and we're fighting the corporation, but like they're replicating so many of the dynamics that are, um, yeah, the exactly. overwork, the burnout. Like it's it happens yeah. in those spaces too. So yeah, and um, I think that's where this like movement chaplaincy is so transformative because it's saying like, we need to live in the way that we want the world to live in. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we need to be embodying this, this way of life, which is yeah. more connected. It's taking care of ourselves, taking care of each other. Um, and that's really, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we should probably turn ahead to yeah. our interview now. And so here is our interview with Perry and Ed. Reverend Perry Doherty is the executive director of Still Harbor, editor of Anchor Magazine, and an instructor at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Perry serves as a facilitator, chaplain, and spiritual director at Still Harbor, 
She has a background in corporate training and development, as well as nonprofit development, communications, and management. Perry is an ordained interspiritual minister by One Spirit Interfaith Seminary, and she studied social thought and analysis with a specialization in the sociology of education at Washington University in St. Louis. She brings her personal and professional interests together through her service by exploring where creative expression and narrative meet spirituality and social justice. Reverend Edward M. Cardoza is the founder of Still Harbor and serves as a facilitator, chaplain, and spiritual director at Still Harbor. Ed received a Master's in Arts in Ministry from St. John's Seminary School of Theology and completed a practicum in spiritual direction at the Center for Religious Development through the Weston Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In addition to serving with Still Harbor, Ed is also ordained in the Episcopal tradition and has just been called as rector to St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Ed serves on the board of directors for the global health nonprofit Partners in Health, where he was the vice president for development for six years. Partners in Health is where Ed and Perry first worked together. He also serves on the board of Episcopal City Mission. So thank you both for being with us today. I'm so excited to have um, both of you here as you were both my teachers through the Still Harbor Spiritual Direction Practicum. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. So to begin, we'd just love to hear a little bit about Still Harbor and how you each came to this work. Yeah, maybe Perry, if you want to start by telling us your story, a little bit about your background and and how you came to Spiritual Direction. Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I came to Still Harbor because of Ed in large part. So um, it's interesting for me to go first, but it's sort of an exciting switch. I worked with uh, Ed at Partners in Health, which is a global health nonprofit, as was said in the bio, and um, a social justice organization. And I worked there for five years before working at, at Still Harbor. And one of the reasons that I was drawn to that work was because of the commitment to social justice using a lens of liberation theology. And I had studied liberation pedagogies uh, in undergraduate at WashU. And so I was really drawn to an organization that had a direct service mission of delivering health in resource-poor settings, but used uh, language of liberation theology in developing their mission um, and vision for, for how that work should be done. And so I was doing administration and communications and and fundraising, and I worked with Ed on the fundraising capacity there. And a big part of what I recognized um, was that the mission and the values of the organization were really important to me feeling inspired and connected to to the jobs that I was doing. I never thought of myself as somebody who wanted to go out and ask for money, but because of the mission and values of the people I was working with and the organization I was working for, that job felt really easy to me. And so I really sort of paid attention to, to that as I was leaving. And I ended up leaving in part because I was burning out. I was... I was working way too much. I was beginning to question the values and the mission, um, not because it wasn't still in place, but there was a lot less time to pay attention to cultivating that. 
Um, and so as I was leaving that organization, Ed had had started Still Harbor and we got to talking about his vision. And basically I said, all right, well, I can support Ed in, in developing this vision that he has for Still Harbor as an organization that works specifically on spiritual formation for social justice organizations and, and leaders. And so I, I really started this work by putting my trust in in this vision that Ed was holding and saying, I think I could work with him on that. Um, and I, I guess I'll, I'll let Ed chime in a little bit there. My story continues, but um, I'll let Ed sort of talk about his founding vision um, now and, and what, I, what I stepped in to follow at that point in time. So as Perry was mentioning, in 2008, I had been the Vice President for Development and Partners in Health and the organization had grown significantly. When I started there, we were at about $6.8 million. And by the time 2008 came along, we were at $68 million. And we were no longer just simply working in Haiti and working in Peru and in Mexico and Chiapas and Guatemala uh, and in Russia, but we had done this very big expansion into Africa. So it was extraordinarily exciting to see global health coming into its own. There was the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Malaria, and Tuberculosis. Tracy Kidder had written a book about partners in health. You were beginning to see folks like Paul Farmer and Jim Kim and Ophelia Dahl and Tom White uh, really become known and be sought after as folks who are deeply committed to social justice and an implementation of a health strategy to combat infectious disease spread and to alleviate poverty. One of the difficulties was that we were also working with folks who were giving their 100% to this work, and they were burning out. There was no other way to talk about it. So we could see that there was this pipeline of formation of folks who were willing to do extraordinary things to get deeply involved in social justice, to immerse into communities throughout the world, to work hand-in-hand, partner-to-partner with communities, and to alleviate poverty. And I think the powerful thing was we were starting to see that happen for a lot of folks that had seemed like, you know, some sort of fairy tale. But when you go into a town with no hospital structure, no wells, no electricity, and in three to six months, you have a functioning hospital. You are treating um, diseases like tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV. You're seeing folks no longer die of those diseases. They're not just simply being prevented, but they're actually being treated. And people are starting to live in a place where just a few months before they were dying. But that work takes a toll on individuals. So I was really interested in the parts of liberation theology, the parts of our accompaniment model that were really looking at keeping social justice warriors grounded in their work, really deeply connected with what drew them into this work, to really allow them to live out that call, to bring a degree of capacity to their work so that they could have the tools to keep themselves healthy that they could make sure that they weren't burning out, and then to really help with the commitment that they had, that if they found themselves starting to pull away from the work or find the work unmanageable or unbearable, 
that they had someone who they could reach out to in an attentive ear. And in the early days, you know, Perry and I came up with sort of the three C's of Still Harbor, which is to really help people with their call or their purpose, to really help them develop the capacity to do this type of deep social justice work, to do it with a strong accompaniment model, and then to really sort of help out with commitment, making sure that when people got to that place where they were starting to burn out, or where they were beginning to think whether or not they were good enough for the work, or if the organization was really doing what it ought to be doing, what it was saying to doing, they needed to have sort of a neutral place to do that. And that's really where Still Harbor came from. The whole concept is that we try to create a harbor in which people come in, people as ships, and they unpack all their goods and pull down the sails and really get reinvigorated and re-energized, and that then they go back out. So there was never any sense that Still Harbor was this place of permanence, but it was really a place to help folks in the social justice arena uh, get the care that they needed so that they could go out and continue to care and continue on the, the battlefront of equity and justice. So, so basically, I joined Ed in, in developing Still Harbor because I needed Still Harbor's service is the summary of that, that, that introduction. And I think not a lot has changed since that original vision. Um, that's, that's still what we're doing. We've learned a lot along the way about how to do it. But that vision holds true today. Hmm. Ed, can you share with us maybe how you came to spiritual direction and how you saw that as like kind of a solution or at least a one of the tools that you could use to help address some of these problems of burnout that you were seeing? Sure. Um, I'm probably the, the older person in the room. Uh, I was born in 1972, which means that when HIV and AIDS was starting to come out in the United States, I was in junior high. And by the time I was in high school, the first person in my life who happened to be my first boss uh, became infected with HIV and passed away of AIDS. And at 16 years old, it was very, very profound. And one of the things he said to me when I went to see him in the hospice, which was a very new concept at that time, creating these hospices mostly for men, there were women there, but it was mostly men, it was mostly gay men, he turned to me and said, you must be so deeply embarrassed to hear this about me. And I was just devastated because this was a person who I cared for, who I loved, who I considered my mentor. And I could see that he was still suffering under this deep, deep shame that he was not good enough he was not worthy, he was not enough, and for me, he was everything. Mm -hmm. So I remember the power as a high schooler to have that conversation, and as I moved up into seminary, uh, it was a time in which the church was getting more involved with uh, AIDS care and with AIDS ministry, and there was a young man who I uh, was fortunate enough to work alongside and on Tuesday nights, he would throw open his apartment door and put a candle outside and just had a simple sign that he scrawled that said, do you or someone you know have AIDS or are HIV positive? You're welcome here to talk. And every Tuesday night, I sat in his parlor, and sometimes there were three of us, and sometimes there were 30 of us. 
And it was this very powerful example of accompaniment and presence, creating space for people to drop in, to be able to share in the ways that they're comfortable, to know that they are seen and heard and cared for and respected, and to simply offer an ear, which more times than anything else is simply creating space for listening and for silence. So those two moments, that encounter with my boss telling me something that he was still deeply shameful for and telling him that he was more than enough, he was my everything, and really giving him the space to be able to share that with a 16-year-old, and then having this continual space in the south end of Boston in the early 1990s when there was no treatment for HIV, and to see the wonderful care and accompaniment that women and men offer to each other to provide that attentive ear, that degree of accompaniment, was really my foundation to seeing that this work is sacred work, it's needed work, it's transformative work, it both heals and restores and equips individuals to be of service to others. If I can chime in, I think what Ed's two stories there illustrate are some important points that we hold both, I think both of us as spiritual directors, but also, um, you know, within, within Still Harbor's vision, which is that a lot of times, uh, the people who are fighting for social change, uh, whether it's professionally with a, a paid job or as activists or as community organizers, or in, in some capacity, the people who are fighting for social justice are often the ones impacted by social injustice. And we mm. saw that with um, the movement that surrounded um, gay rights, that surrounded HIV advocacy. And, and so those spaces were not only spaces to heal people who were being impacted by the terrible disease and the injustices that people were facing surrounding that kind of diagnosis at that time, but it was, it was spaces to to bring together and to gather in healing community the people who were at the forefront of fighting for justice mm -hmm. at that time. And so we take that into our work, recognizing that the people who we serve, while they're not necessarily the recipient of their services or their activism directly, they are often very, very, very personally connected to the wounds of the injustice, whether as a witness or whether as somebody who experienced it at a previous time. So, mm -hmm. and that cuts across the justice issues that we work on. But knowing that and seeing that has become really important to grounding our work um, and recognizing that it's sort of a, we're all in it together and, and trying to take down the boundaries of the us versus them kind of thing of, oh, I'm a service provider, or I'm a service recipient, or I'm somebody who's advocating for change, and I'm somebody who's receiving the benefits of change, that more often than not, those boundaries of, of sides in this don't exist. Um, mm -hmm. And so part of why we bring the spiritual accompaniment is to really honor that and pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. It's like the healers healing the healers, like who's who's holding that role and I see a lot of like reciprocity in those relationships. 
Yeah, I was just going to say I can resonate with a lot of that because I've I've been a critical care nurse for most of my career and working in the ICU and often dealing with people that are at the end of their life um, and, and with families who are struggling with, with, you know, letting go of people at the end of their life. And and sometimes you also see very violent or sort of just tragic or, or horrible things as well. And I remember when I really first started to understand that, I, I mean, first of all, I had my own story of um, pain and suffering in my family that had led me to do healing work to begin with. But beginning to understand, um, when we really started to talk about it in amongst nurses and amongst other healthcare workers, and we really started to understand that we were also experiencing a kind of secondary trauma a lot of times being mm-hmm. in those environments and, and the importance of our own sort of self-care and spiritual care. And we begin to do things like have uh, debriefing after like, you know, like have a chaplain come and debrief with us after really um, intense experiences. Like if we all went through like a code together where we were trying to save someone's life or something, um, you know, we began to do those kinds of things and how helpful they were. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can just resonate with that experience. And I think that's exactly why we do this work is the, is sort of that example in the hospital setting where chaplains have been in place for a, for a long time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and they've been in place for the patients, but but also for the caregivers. And that we try to bring that model of spiritual care belonging in the social justice spaces, whether it's a formal organization or a community group, that this kind of spiritual accompaniment and tending to the spiritual journey really really does matter for for the the social healing space that the social justice movements are trying to create. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I'd never really put it together the like chaplaincy in the in the health field. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I didn't really sort of understand those origins to it. And, and it's it's interesting because I think even for Perry and ourselves, that's become sort of a new place of clarity for us. Mm. And, um, you know, we're working currently in Brockton Hospital doing work there. And what's been very interesting is when you go into a place like a hospital or you go into a place like a prison, people almost quickly orient to us uh, in a way that they don't really need to be told, why are we there? Mm. They don't look at us with two heads and think, what do you mean spirituality? What's that about? They look at us really as a resource to be able to share and to talk about the things that are unfolding in their life that perhaps they're unable to do with others or they're reluctant to because the other helping professions are sort of overloaded with the other elements of their care in their case. So what we've been experimenting with really Uh, and I think Perry sort of put her finger on it by sort of offering us this word, is nonprofit chaplaincy. And what we're starting to realize is that as you have lots of folks who are immersed in these social justice arenas, uh, and a larger percentage of those folks do not necessarily have the spiritual care that would be afforded to them if they were practicing members of religious communities, because as you look now, you know, at folks in their 30s and 20s, more and more people are disenfranchised from religious organizations. But what's intriguing is while they may have that disenfranchisement or they have simply not been engaged with it, 
They have a very high level, a high ranking of the role of spirituality in their life, the role mm-hmm. of reflection, the role of critically integrating narrative in their lives. And so those folks, once you give them the space and talk about nonprofit chaplaincy, they seem to think like, yeah, if you have that in the hospital and you know, folks have that in the military and they have that in the prison, why wouldn't we have that, you know, in activism and in the social justice organization? So it's been language we've tried on and it seems to be language that people are resonating with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was going to say this. I've been so curious about the term spiritual direction. Um, and I know that this sort of relationship of accompaniment shows up in many traditions, but I believe that that phrase itself is Christian. It, it comes from Christianity. Is that correct? I would see it as Christian, and I would see it distinctively as something that comes out of a more Roman Catholic tradition of Christianity. And And the monastic tradition, too. And the monastic tradition. So coming out of that sort of orthodoxy and sort of the monastic traditions. And I think what you're seeing is as you get more folks engaged from, say, the Quakers or individuals mm-hmm. who are tapping into some of the Celtic traditions, you start to hear things like Anam Karan mm-hmm. and sort of the, the soul giver or the soul friendship. So it's been interesting to see how even that word spiritual direction, which I think can sometimes imply that the director is directing, which is in fact the very thing that right. the director is not supposed <laughs> right. to be doing. Right. <laughs> well, I was, I just wanted to say real quick that that's, sort of the other part of what I was going to say was that um, the Christians that I know, they've never heard the term spiritual direction, but all of my like non-religious friends really respond to that phrase. Like it makes sense to them intuitively and there's no reason for it to. So I just, that was just something that I've been interested in. That's fascinating. I mean, I think chaplain has Christian origins too, Mm -hmm. even though we see interfaith chaplaincy throughout you know, these major institutions from the military to prisons to hospitals um, that's been around a long time. I I think one of the interesting pieces is that as we toy around with what what do we call this kind of spiritual accompaniment, there, there is a slight sort of sense that if you're seeking spiritual direction, that means you know that you want to go on a spiritual journey and go deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think when we enter the organizational spaces, we're really looking at those moments where it's the candle at the door saying, you're welcome here. Come mm-hmm. and talk. Mm-hmm. Because not everybody has identified that their sense of disconnection from the team that they're working on is connected to a sense that there was a values compromise and that they're not sure they believe in the mission anymore, which is all sort of material that, that is existential or philosophical or spiritual, right? That, that is mm-hmm. spiritual mm-hmm. material. I mean, we can call it leadership. We can call it, we can call it psychological, but really, you know, when we're, when we're beginning to say, what do I believe? How do I show up in the world in the way that I believe? And how do I tend to that and stay in a sense of wholeness, in a sense of connection to something greater? That, that's spiritual work. And so we have found that at the right place and time, you know, the listening practice gives people, you know, the listening being brought into organizations as a practice that's guided by people who are trained gives people an ability to understand, you know, why we use these words. But I do think it's interesting because 
in spiritual direction implies that somebody knows they're seeking. And then chaplaincy does sort of have this edge that's, you know, it's about comfort. And and we, we try to break out of that a little bit and say that chaplaincy is about comfort. It's also about stretch. And it's also about the journey and sort of how do we show up again tomorrow and tend to our wholeness in a way that allows us to show up as the best version of ourselves tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so critical in in any organization or community or group that I've been a part of, the willingness not just to like receive comfort from one another, but also to sit with one another in our discomfort and to allow conflict to sort of um, to arise and to deal with it, to engage it really mindfully and allow it to spur us on to growth. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like there's there's a role there for spiritual directors and chaplains to play. And I can see that too in sort of the greater collective. Like if, we, if we're talking about a movement, like the movements that we're seeing, like greater social movements that maybe nonprofit organizations are taking part of, that there's sort of this need there for um, chaplaincy and spiritual direction. I mean, especially when you talk about like, when maybe you're in an organization where there's been like a compromise of values, like we kind of need this on the whole as well, like on the collective levels, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And and I think that's part of the reason we do talk about leadership, that if we can bring the spiritual companionship and, and sort of spiritual grit to the people who are taking on leadership, then we have a better chance that the movement and the collective can pay attention to that as a whole. Because as much as things are grassroots sort of ground up when it comes to social movements, a lot of the tone that's set around reflection and discernment and values and what matters most and how we're going to pay attention to it is set from the top down. Um, and, and the bottom up can challenge it. But I think it's part of the reason why we focus on bringing this in and talk about leadership as really important is because of that collective question. And I think what you've seen, you know, if you look at education, for instance, it's very clear that we're starting to focus heavily on the intellectual formation around activism and around social justice. There are many programs now well beyond the bachelor's undergraduate experience. You know, you have MBAs that focus on this type of leadership and this type of of movement making. So that's intellectual formation. And then you have professional formation or professional development actually getting into the work, finding who your mentors are going to be, finding the organizations where you're going to deploy And fundamentally, I think, discerning the communities and being invited into those communities and immersing into those communities and sort of engaging in professional development there. And what Perry and I noticed when we were at Partners in Health is that the people who were the healthiest in the organization, the people who took prudent risks without putting themselves in the organization at risk, and the people who had the longest trajectory for bringing about significant change were the folks who took those three things in, professional development, uh, intellectual development, and spiritual development, or the interior development, and really led and leaned into those. And I remember Perry and I once talking about that, like, what gives that person that quality that you just want to hang around with them? And they're the, they're the person in the room that 
if they come up with a battle cry, you know, our Haitian colleagues used to talk about the joie bataille, you know, the battle horse that you would be led into justice with. There were individuals around us who I think Perry and I pretty much would have done whatever they wanted us to do because we had this strong, deep sense that these were well-grounded individuals. So I think that's the other thing about Still Harbor that we try to do is to focus in on that third segment, that spiritual development, that interior life development, and really create moments for leaders to really think about how do they want to be formed in that particular arena. And I think that sometimes people have asked us, well, why don't you just be an, a leadership development organization that brings in spiritual stuff? And we've seen again and again and again that it is the spiritual accompaniment, the one-on-one and the small group spiritual accompaniment that uses the practices of spiritual direction and chaplaincy that have been around for ages, ancient practices, that offers people space to understand how change works within them in order to understand how change works in the collective. Mm. And I think that if we were to say that that is simply leadership formation, we would be missing the like the special sauce <laughs> that actually makes mm. it. And so we do have this goal of elevating those ancient traditions, elevating the wisdom traditions, not just Christian, because there are there are traditions of teaching and mentorship and guidance and support that that do cut across all all wisdom traditions really. Of mm-hmm. who do you go to when you're stuck and you want to talk it out? And every wisdom tradition has that kind of model. And so we wanted to elevate that as essential for social justice work. That all the leadership programs that you can go to, they're great. And there's something that has been missing, the spiritual formation gap, we call it, that we want to begin to elevate as essential. And that's really why we focus so much on the spiritual direction and element of of our work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I you actually kind of answered something that I was going to ask because I was going to say, like, you know, one of the critiques I sort of hear sometimes of practices like spiritual direction or just any practice that fosters that sort of interior development um, and that I've heard sometimes from people who are very oriented towards social change or are involved in activism on a really deep level is that it's too individualistic that it's navel gazing or you know like these are some of the, (laughs) the critiques we hear and to me that it's always my observation in community and families and relationships has always been that interior individual development helps me to show up better in community, you know, and that those are two mm-hmm. things that feed one another. And that, that, that you know, being in community also helps to feed my interior <laughs> personal development as well, um, because I'm, I'm having things reflected back to me and, and I'm having to sort of like push up against the, the limits, my own limits a lot of times when I'm in community with other people and that these things are not incompatible and that they actually both really feed one another. Absolutely. Ed's favorite word is navel-gazing. So I'll let him <laughs> take that on. Yeah, no, I, I, I do chuckle about it a lot because I do think that for some folks, spirituality and spiritual practice, they may in fact experience it as navel-gazing. It's about self-efficacy and it's about taking care of oneself. 
And, you know, we also love our bubbles at Still Harbor. And for our bubbles, you know, the way we think about things is that there's the self, there's the self in relationship to others, and then there's the self in relationship to others, and then the capital other, however anyone wants to define that. And what we're really encouraging folks to do is to be able to move into a spirit of integration of that so that it's not navel-gazing. In fact, it's moving you consistently out of yourself towards the others, towards the other, which then returns you back into a place of reflection so that what you're coming back with is a renewed sense of where are you in relationship to the problems of the world? I often chuckle, you know, we have an inability to have these authentic conversations. We've started to have these difficult conversations about health care, and we didn't quite ever have that as a society in the United States. We try to have a conversation around race for probably the 27th time, and that, again, was a painful, painful experience to watch. Now we're currently trying to have this conversation about misogyny and sexual violence and sexual trauma and what constitutes sexual abuse. Each of these conversations is deeply, deeply significant, but if you watch it, the missteps happen because people are not able to engage in that level of authentic conversation. They're not able to move out of themselves and begin to place them in a place where perhaps before speaking, they need to listen. And perhaps before speaking, not only do they need to listen, they need to make a decision that the person or the people they need to listen to are the individuals who are most hurt or most in need of no longer being marginalized. And I think when you come into communities that do that work, and there are communities that do that work, that's where you see transformation. And it's only through that transformation that you can have the degree of reconciliation that we need as a country. So, you know, the context has been very, very painful for, for us as individuals who've been involved in the global health front, have seen the way in which people who have HIV are maligned, have seen how people who live in resource-poor settings are maligned, and have understood how race and sex and sexuality and gender and social and economic class are played out. So often, I think it's because people come at them without a degree of humility and without a degree of really being able to listen before they speak. And those are the things that I think you learn in spiritual practice. And those are the things that actually turn you out of looking at your belly button and out towards the gaze of another and force you not to avert your eyes, but rather to put your eyes completely and utterly on the injustices in the world. And I think if you look at the Abrahamic traditions, you can find at the very least, archetypes or stories that help us understand how individual discernment is connected to collective transformation. And I think that that piece of this is whether whether you're Muslim or Christian or Jewish, when we talk about the Abrahamic tradition, you 
or or none of the above. Like those archetypes of spiritual wisdom still hold, I think, on some level. And we can look at, you know, we can look at Hinduism and Buddhism and we can say, you know, what what are the teachings here as it relates to the individual and society? And what are the teachings around suffering in Buddhism about how an individual's suffering can can malign and hurt social contract? Like like we can see that in the teachings. Um, and I and I think we can we can kind of cross all these wisdom traditions and see these archetypes. But what the movement out of institutional religion may be doing, and I think this is very theoretical for me at this point still, but what it what it may be doing is actually not allowing us to leverage that ancient wisdom for the moment that we're in. And and so we get in these intellectual sort of mind centered critiques that you know, spiritual direction is navel gazing. And it's like, okay, there is a version of the spiritual life that can be navel gazing. And yet, if we think, how does change happen? How does somebody change their mind on an issue? How does somebody admit that they're wrong or that they've failed or that they've hurt somebody, right? How do I, as a white woman, admit that I have privilege when it comes to a race conversation? How do I get there? Well, Mm -hmm. I don't see getting there as a solely intellectual path. And sometimes that safe space of being listened to, that safe space of being held in my spiritual journey and allowing me to say, I'm discerning something here. I haven't made sense of it yet. It hurts. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure it out is what allows that change to happen so that the social and the, the collective can can be transformed together and so so i think i think that there are those critiques we've fought them for 10 years for sure um and i think there is a real danger to doing some sort of spiritual bypass where it's like oh if everybody just gets a spiritual guide the world would be a better place and that's (laughs) not true either um or if we were all more mindful none of this Mm -hmm. would happen like mm, there's there's something bigger we need to tap into, and we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting for me as you were bringing up some of these faith traditions, especially when it comes to the Abrahamic traditions. I guess I, I sometimes wonder about the difference between sacred activism and like faith-rooted justice. Because I think what we've sort of been centering around, and I mean, this is what like Rebecca and I might call sacred activism, and that's sort of this like this intersection between, you know, personal transformation and social transformation, but that there's like this, I don't know that there's something in in those traditions that like, yeah, the Bible tells me to treat people nicely, but it's like paternalistic. Like it doesn't have this sort of like inward turning empathy oriented sort of like what you're talking about, where there's sort of this like interior understanding of why we should treat the other quote unquote well, I wonder if either of you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things is even within the fates, right, you do have these, these splits, you know, some folks have that understanding that you do good things because you're being commanded to do good things. Other folks have a very deep understanding that there has been a fracture or a break. You know, I think of our Jewish brothers and sisters who use that phrase, tika ulum, that it's our obligation, our moral obligation to become repairers of the breach. 
that that breach and that fracturing of society, the structural violence, is something that we're not just simply responsible for doing, but we're actually co-participants in. So I think, you know, as you start to look at a lot of what's going on in faith communities, there are these really serious conversations at times about what constitutes justice, what constitutes reconciliation. And then sometimes I'm, I find myself today in 2017 as a Christian somewhat appalled that, you know, what I think are fairly basic Christian empathetic responses are sort of not held mm-hmm. uh, in common. And some of the deductions that are being made out of what I think are very clear, simple desires by, you know, the head of my particular faith, Jesus, um, are not held. Not only are they not held, they're really not understood. So to me, I always come to that sort of metanoic element of religious faiths, that if you're going to be in relationship with yourself and in relationship with others and in relationship with the other, it means that you're sort of extirpated out of your, you know, place where you're rooted and you're turned 180 degrees around so that you're facing a radically different experience of the sacred and a very radical different experience of your faith as it should and ought to be lived out and that type of, of sacredness. So, you know, I've, I've come to realize as I enter my 40s that more and more I have always associated with the prophets and the saints who have always had that radical message. Um, you know, whether it's somebody like Francis of Assisi or somebody like Dorothy Day, um, those two folks are separated by a very different context. And yet they're both saying, are you fundamentally going to be for the other or are you going to be for yourself? And are you going to do these things because God commands them? Or are you going to do these things because part of the uh, disorder and destruction of nature is brought about by humans um, is required that humans fix it and that we don't simply look to some sort of God sitting in a cloud uh, to tend to it. And um, I think that is the hard work. And uh, it's interesting because I straddle both words, right? I work in a nonprofit, and then I also work in a very traditional Episcopal parish. And it's interesting to go in between those worlds and to see that tension alive in 2017. And I... I mean, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would venture to say that in, in some ways you're doing the same work in both worlds, which is about leveraging spirituality and, and tending to spiritual formation of a community. And Absolutely. The, and the faith traditions need that as much as mm-hmm. any nonprofit, right? And mm-hmm. And sometimes we've gotten away from that ability even within the very institutions that have taught us what this is. And, and I think that has to do from my perspective, a little bit with the difference between sort of the mystical traditions from mystical paths from each tradition um, with the institutional path of each tradition or with institutional development. I think that's still an oversimplification, but paying attention to the question of spiritual formation, I think we have to say, what are our tools? And once we get into adulthood, our tools are no longer believe this because I said so. You know, as a, as a mother, I say believe it because I said so or do it because <laughs> I said so. 
not infrequently. I try my mm. best to <laughs> not go there. But, you know, with with childhood development, like at, at a certain point, it's like, well, this this is something that you can explore when you when you get to a developmental place where it's explorable. You know, we haven't always allowed adults to engage spiritual formation in faith communities in the way that adults can. And so I think that's a piece of it. But I, to your question about sacred activism versus faith-rooted organizing, you know, I, I've had a critique at times around interfaith organizing groups or faith-rooted organizing groups at times where it's, it's about throwing around the power of the institutions that people belong to as opposed to doing the deep spiritual transformation work. And that's a bold statement to put on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't mean that that's all that it's about. But oftentimes I've thought of like interfaith organizing, especially where everybody is grounded in their own faith traditions and organizing for a cause. It's about leveraging the power of the institutions they belong to. And not so much about how do we come together and see how change operates in our inner lives so that we can understand how it operates collectively. And I don't think that leveraging institutions that have power is bad. I think mm -hmm. that that's necessary part of social change. But that's not really tending to the personal transformation that connects with the social transformation, which is where we try to focus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if maybe, and thank you for that. I really, I actually love that distinction. Um, I'm wondering if maybe now you two would like to tell us a little bit more about Still Harbor and what kinds of programs you offer. Uh, so Still Harbor offers a variety of programs. Um, our main model is a partnership model where we partner with organizations or community groups or activist groups or, Ed had mentioned Brockton Hospital, where we partner with a variety of different institutions to create programs that support teams or the organization as a whole or some constituency that the organization serves in spiritual formation and accompaniment. So we offer a variety of services, one of which may be that chaplaincy program. So partnering alongside an organization and offering their staff or their constituents or some group that we define together, one-on-one -on -one chaplaincy support. Um, we also do workshops and training where we, we introduce ourselves as chaplains and we facilitate conversations and we bring in some of the teaching that helps make the, the chaplaincy thrive within the organization. So that's one model is, is we're a partner to social justice entities, uh, broadly defined and so we love that when people call us and say, we're starting this organization, we've been running this organization for a while, we're a community group and we want to pay attention to this. And, and we love to partner in collaborating with any entity to, to create something that can tend to the, the spiritual accompaniment of, of their service or activism. So that that's the bulk of our work right now. We also, the program that, that Chelsea mentioned, run a spiritual direction practicum, which is really our scale-up plan. We, we are more than just Ed and myself as a team, but we're not that large a team. We've got about 10 people on, on various kinds of projects or contracts as chaplains or spiritual directors or a couple admin support. 
but none of them are full-time. So we're not, we're not that big. So our scale-up plan is really by training people who are committed to social justice and are committed to learning how to do spiritual direction in social justice contexts, um, whether that's their, their faith community where they want to be offering spiritual direction and, and supporting people in social justice within that community, or whether that's outside the faith community. So that's a year-long program. We also uh, publish a magazine that is put out right now twice a year um, and that has stories and narratives and content from a variety of spiritual leaders and social justice leaders. And beautiful artwork. Yeah, beautiful art and poetry. And a very recent program that we just launched this year with our colleague Monique Harris is called Emotional Emancipation Circles. We're running it in Boston this year, and it's a a specific affinity space for black people to do spiritual healing, emotional healing from the wounds of racial injustice. And Monique Harris facilitates that. And the curriculum was developed by a community healing network and association of black psychologists. And Monique's been trained up to to do that work and to offer one-on-one spiritual direction for the black community here in Boston as they work on their own healing in order to lead change and, and continue to show up in, in the fight that is often places a great burden on them over us white folks. Um, so those, that's sort of the spectrum. I think the, the partnership model has us doing a lot of different things um, with a lot of different organizations. But Thank you. You guys are great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love still having you. Well, we really appreciate having this time with you. It's been yeah. really nice. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much for joining. And um, and as always, we like to wrap up by sharing what's been inspiring or nourishing each of us. Um, so actually, maybe Ed, could you go first? What's nourishing or inspiring you today? Um, sure. You know, one of the things that I really like to do at this time of year is to track the light. And I find this is a time of year that I get up before the sun comes up. And it's a time of year that I tend to be at my desk, just as I am right now, as the sun is going down. And there's something really beautiful about seeing the beautiful colors that come out in this particular part of New England where I am. And so I just find a nice, comfortable chair either in the early morning or the early evening. And I just take that 15 to 20 minutes as the light begins to transition. In the morning, I find myself asking what it is that I want to be born uh, of this day, maybe my joys that are going to be lived out, maybe some of my worries. And then at this particular time, even during this conversation, as I've been looking out the window, I've been thinking about the things that went well today, the things that didn't go so well and what I'm going to do tomorrow to make uh, those things more on the side of being well than on the side of not going so well. So that's sort of my practice during uh, November, December, and January. And what about you, Perry? Um, so I, I had a baby last January. She's about to turn one. Um, and my spiritual practice got like thrown out the window in in many different directions as I navigated (laughs) having another baby in the house. And so actually about four weeks ago, I had a little talk with myself 
um, <laughs> about becoming more, both more disciplined and more free with my practice of sort of being able to sit in meditation, um, even if there was a, other things going on and, and it didn't feel ideal because there's a baby wandering around the room or whatever. Um, and so what I've done as a result of my freeing discipline is, is re-engage my, my practice with chant. Um, and mm. I've been playing kirtan in the house, probably much to, much to the embarrassment of my older 13 year old son. Um, <laughs> even in moments like when I'm cooking dinner or, um, mm. and sort of getting lost in the chant in, in the ordinary day to day and not trying to carve out special time for it. And, and it's been, I mean, it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking about it because it's been so deeply nourishing mm. to go back into that practice and feel free to do it in a way that fits my life right now. So, yeah, that's been really healing for me almost to to realize that's possible. <laughs> Wonderful. That's beautiful. I'm wondering, I love kirtan too. I'm wondering if you have any favorite kirtan artists that you could recommend. Um I am a sucker for Krishna Das. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I, it sounds great. so cliche <laughs> that I wish I could say some someone else. <laughs> um, I love Katie, but I I really um, he's my go to, um, mm-hmm. and I, there's something about the the sound of his voice that it's just been an anchor for me. Um, Diva Pramal also is is one I go to, but um, and there's this Sushumna which is an album that was put together and I don't actually know all of the artists on it, but has this one track called Alleluia that Ed has heard me play probably too many times (laughs) Um, (laughs) that uh, is sort of a kirtan with Alleluia. That's a really lovely Mm. um, and I'm totally butchered the the name of the album and I don't know the artists, but (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. What about you, Rebecca? Um, okay, so my recommendation is I'm actually studying uh, under an astrologer named Adam Allen Boss, who um, I'm taking a year-long program from him. And he's someone who's very – actually, his father was a Christian minister, and he's very rooted in both Christian mysticism and yogic philosophy. And I'm really loving the way he teaches astrology and looking at it as like looking at the movement of the seasons and the planets um, as an opportunity for spiritual growth and development. And he's been doing some videos lately on Saturn. There's a lot of things going on with Saturn, changing signs and things like that, but really looking at it symbolically and and in a way that's really rooted in a lot of um, the mysticism that comes from ancient Greek philosophy. And looking at this moment as an opportunity to really embrace discipline, which is always something that's a challenge for me, um, and and sort of look at the hard limits of our lives and being able to surrender, surrender to them in a way, as a way of opening to spiritual growth that's been speaking to me a lot. So, um, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes um, if anyone's interested in checking him out. Awesome. What about you, Chelsea? Uh, I wish I could say I, I was being inspired by discipline. <laughs> no, that's not true. But um, uh, what's inspiring me right now? Um, so we have this little calendar here at the house at the Brooklyn Center for Sacred Activism in my community. Uh, we once had this this really radical nun stay with us. Like she was one of the like nuns on the bus. Um, I don't know if any of you know who yeah, the nuns the on nuns. the bus are. 
Um, and she came and stayed with us and she left us this, uh, calendar and it's like a monthly thing where you kind of change the prayers, um, every month and there's one for each day and, and they're all based off of the earth charter principles. And so we often read these prayers at our community dinners when we have potlucks. And this past Sunday night, we had our sort of holiday potluck and, and it was really great because it was sort of like marking, you know, it's like our last big event before a few weeks off for the winter. And, um, and there was something in this prayer about honoring the life giving darkness and it's like all I remember from that prayer because it just struck me so hard. And and that's just sort of where I'm at right now is just sort of really surrendering to this time of year and to the season to, um, you know, the dimming of the light and, you know, much as Ed was saying earlier. And um, so I'm just sort of holding that with me and, and, you know, kind of feeling my own light dimming a little bit, but kind of surrendering to that as as like a time for rest and renewal. And, and so I'm like really sinking into it right now. I have to say, I love sunshine so much and it's so dark in Washington state <laughs> right know, now. You it's the worst place to live. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. So yes, I can resonate with that. Like I'm very much trying to surrender to the darkness as well. <laughs> Don't surrender too much. Yeah. <laughs> Call me if you, if you need to. Um, I'm going to uh, see Modest Yahoo on the solstice. Um, and oh, cool. <laughs> I did that in part because of my resistance to surrendering to the dark. And yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for being here. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.